0: We return after a break of a few weeks from the Gospel of Luke and some of my travels Uh, back to the Gospel of Luke. and We find ourselves in chapter 23, which uh, contains Luke's history of three of the six trials of Jesus. And uh, we've come now to the second of the three. It's Christ's trial, if you would call it that, before corrupt King Herod. And so we're going to read the word. We're going to go back a couple of verses from the previous preaching to verse 6 of chapter 23. And we'll read through verse 16 of chapter, pardon me, verse 15 of chapter 23. So let us hear the word of God. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. and perfection and power is before us. May he speak clearly and truly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we return to uh, some history that Luke, the amateur historian, gives us. And it runs the gamut between the life of the Savior and the corruption of his accusers. And even uh, politics and uh the workings so-called of of government and justice. And uh, all of the trials that are listed in this chapter are all bogus. And so I've called this uh, short uh, analysis of Luke 23, broken justice, because that's exactly what was given to Jesus, broken justice. Thoroughly, thoroughly innocent and, and called guilty anyway, There's a lot of uh, technology today in the criminal justice system and DNA research that has created a new phenomenon in our time, and that's the revealing of uh, hundreds of cases where people were convicted of crimes in our system and have served prison time, but new technology and particularly DNA research has overturned hundreds of their convictions. They were wrongfully convicted but no one will ever go down in history, like I said last time, more wrongfully convicted than Jesus of Nazareth. He went through six bogus trials. Three times he was tried by the Jews in the cover of darkness, all bogus, all against Jewish law, and all three times they declared him guilty as a mob. And now in this chapter, we have three, you could call them secular or Roman trials. And each of these was actually followed by a a verdict of innocence. There are three times when Pilate declares Jesus innocent in, in the survey of this chapter. And yet he is finally found guilty by the pressure of the mob. Now, all of this might seem to our eyes to be human injustice, and it was. But it is all something that's part of the clockwork of Bible prophecy. Paul prayed and thanked God for his sovereignty just a moment ago. And God's sovereign control extends to all things. And it extended to this entire collection of events. In John 15 and verse 25, Jesus actually said that everything he was going to go through in these hours, he prophesied some hours before in John 15 to his disciples in John 15 and verse 25, he said, but the word that is written in their law, the laws of the Jews themselves, the Old Testament record must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Christ was hated, tried, convicted, executed without a cause. He was thoroughly innocent and he had to be in order to be the lamb of God. But Jesus is there quoting in John chapter 15 from David's great messianic psalm in Psalm 69. So all of this was historically prophesied and all of it was divinely ordered by God. It was ordered not only to fulfill prophecy, but to fulfill a plan. And I alluded to that just a moment ago when I said that the one who went to Calvary for our sins had to be clearly innocent not only innocent in the eyes of God to bear our guilt, but even innocent in the court of man. And First Peter 3.18 also had to be fulfilled where the Bible says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Only a righteous sacrifice could have brought our sins to their place. And this entire this entire process of injustice humanly proves that Jesus was righteous through it all. Three bogus Jewish trials, Luke chapter 22, we've studied them all. Three bogus secular or Roman trials, we're now in the midst of them. Last time we were in this passage, we studied the first, which was when Pilate was confronted by the Jewish mob and the high priests who were calling for the death penalty for Jesus. And he began to, to deal with this case and interviewed Jesus. It resulted in the first acquittal of Jesus in, in chapter 23 and the early, early portion of it. Today we move into the second trial before Herod. The third trial will be when Herod returns Jesus to Pilate and Pilate again wrestles with this issue of injustice that troubled even his barren Roman soul and still caves into the mob and Jesus is finally called guilty and sent to the cross. So the first trial has been studied. The second trial is before us and it involves Herod. And if it's possible, Herod had even lower character than Pontius Pilate, who has gone down in history as maybe the most corrupt judge of all time. Herod would get, would have given him a run for his money. Herod was of even lower character and Jesus interacted with Pilate. We saw that last time in the Gospel of John where Pilate questioned him and Jesus did interact with Pilate and revealed truth to him. And if you will, even gave Pilate a momentary opportunity to understand who Christ is as the king of truth. Pilate refused it saying, what is truth? But at least there was interaction. At least there was a response of Jesus to the questions of Pilate. Here, Jesus is silent to the questions of Herod. And in fact, Herod may have been the only person who ever asked Jesus a question whom Jesus never answered. That's a telling, telling a possibility. And what I want to do with this is go, go through it the same way we went through the first trial. I'm just going to make observations from the passage and open it up as it unfolds. Here's the first of five observations we'll go through together. First, the passage reveals Pilate's dilemma. And this is verses 6 and 7, which we touched on last time, but we're going to revisit for, for context. Pilate was put into a dilemma by the crowds. He had acquitted Jesus, but now they wanted blood nonetheless. What's a dilemma? You often hear preachers use it as a, as a tool to teach about a narrative text. And what's a dilemma? Well, the dictionary defines it as a problem that seems to defy a satisfactory solution. You're faced with a situation, and any way you try to solve it, it's not going to be easy where it's not gonna satisfy everyone in the equation, or it may not even satisfy you and your sense of what ought to happen. So a dilemma, a problem that seems to defy a satisfactory solution, and that's what Pilate faced. Let me go over the details. In verses one to five, you remember that the Jews had brought Jesus to Pilate. They had tried him in their own bogus courts, found him guilty of blasphemy, but they they wanted to put him to death Yet Roman law forbade them from uh, putting Christ to death. It's interesting. They could have simply run as a mob and stoned Jesus on impulse. That would have been a possibility in the political system at that time. But they were afraid of the Jewish people that were so uh, caught up in the teaching of Jesus. And so they didn't want that blood on their hands. And so they go to Pilate, who was Who had the ability to sentence a person to death. Interestingly, death by crucifixion. Why does that figure into the prophetic plan? Because that is exactly how the Old Testament described Jesus as having to be executed by crucifixion. So all of this, the prophetic plan is turning. So the Jews knew that they wanted death. They needed to use the Romans to deliver it. So they bring the mob to Pilate's palace in the beginning of chapter 23. They call out a bunch of accusations that are all bogus, but they're designed to politically terrify Pilate, to disturb him. One of the accusations was that in verse verse 2, that Jesus made himself to be a king. They wanted Pilate to think that Jesus made himself to be a political king, ready to take over the culture. That, of course, would be unacceptable to Pilate because it would be unacceptable to Rome. In verse 3, Pilate took Jesus aside, and everything in verse 3 took place in the majority of a, a sweep of passage of verses in John 18, which we studied last time, where Jesus has this dialogue with Pilate. And he talks to him about whether he's a king. And Jesus makes clear that he's not a political king. He's not here to take over the human machinations of government. But he is the king of the kingdom of truth. He bears the gospel. He is the truth-telling son of God. And he invited Pilate into a momentary exploration of what he is the king over, the king of truth. And Pilate rejected it and said, what is truth in his cynicism. He walked out of that hearing room back to the porch and he declared that he found no guilt in him, verse 4, because Pilate didn't see Jesus as the political king that the crowds tried to threaten him with. So there is the first acquittal. Verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He thought that would end it. That only started it verse 5, but they were urgent. The Greek word is very intensive. They were filled with energy, filled with demand. They weren't having it. They were there for one objective, to take Jesus to death. So they, they, they hardly listened to Pilate's decision. They were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So they're pressing him with more accusations. Pilate is in that dilemma I mentioned he suddenly finds himself faced with the fact that he knows that Jesus is innocent. So even in his low character, he struggles with condemning an innocent man. That wasn't Roman, and that wasn't part of his character. But on the other hand, he knew that he was seeing a riot beginning to brew, a riot that might get back to Rome and threaten his already insecure position. And so he's on the horns, as they say, of a dilemma. Just as, as, as this is rising to its height, however, he hears something when they say he, he began in Galilee and he now even teaches in this place. And that's where we go back to the text that I started earlier. When Pilate heard this verse six, he asked whether the man Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. I mentioned last time that Pilate heard what is music to any politician's words. He heard a loophole a way out of the problem. He could dump this on someone else. And so when he learned that Jesus was from Nazareth, that his ministry had been predominantly in Galilee, Herod, a tinpot king, actually had legal jurisdiction over Galilee. And so he finds the opportunity. He's going to dump this case to another court. And so he decides to hand it over to Herod and he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem that week because it was Passover week. Herod usually lived in a luxurious place called Tiberius in Galilee that he had built. But now he was in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. In fact, he was in a palace not too far from Pilate's courtyard. So Pilate sends his guards to take Jesus over to Herod. And for the moment, his problem is solved. He's hoping that this will be the end of it. He won't have to deal with it. Pilate's dilemma. Now it develops into the second thing you can see as the narrative progresses, and that's Herod before Jesus, beginning at verse 8. Here is what you could call Herod's moment. It is a moment in which he is face-to-face with someone whom he has wanted to meet face-to-face for years. It is his moment before the king of truth. It is his moment before the soul-penetrating son of God. It is his moment to be revealed, as, as uh, Stalker, the Bible commentator, said for who he was. Stalker said, Every, whenever anyone met Jesus, Jesus revealed who they were. That's what this entire uh, set of trials reveals about different individuals. So it's Herod's moment. What do we see here? Something very interesting, I believe, about character and Christ. So listen closely. You might ask as we begin to look at this next set of verses, who was Herod? It's a good question if you're a Bible student because there turned out to be so many of them. All of them lousy people, by the way. Hopefully you don't have any family name that's got Herod somewhere in the far distance. If you do that 23andMe thing and you find out you're related to Herod, don't tell anybody. He was the son of Herod the Great, who lived in uh, the, the, the decades and ruled in Jerusalem and Judea before Christ was born and at Christ's birth. Herod the Great was a great builder. He built the temple that was there right in Jerusalem, rebuilt it from the ground up into a grand edifice, but he was also a great murderer. He was, he was a psychopathic ruler, paranoid. Killed many of his own family members to protect his rulership. Killed many Jews who challenged his rulership. But he also wanted to kill Christ. This is Herod whom the wise men came to. And when they revealed the existence of a king of the Jews. Jesus born in in Bethlehem. Herod was the one who schemed to kill Jesus. Murdered the innocents around Bethlehem. So that was Herod the Great. He died shortly after that murder, murderous campaign to try and eliminate Jesus. And uh, he had, met, had made plans to divide his kingdom, if he died, among his living sons, all of whom were rotten apples who didn't far, f- fall far from the tree either. Herod Antipas, one of the sons, was given the region of Galilee. So Jerusalem in in Judea down in the southern part of, of Israel as we see it. And Galilee, 80 to 100 miles to the north, it was that region up there. And Nazareth was one of the larger towns in Galilee. Where was Jesus from? Where did he grow up? Where did his ministry begin? And where did it flourish in Galilee? Herod was a ruler of that area. Now, he ruled under Roman authority. He didn't have authority of his own. He had to travel to Rome in order to get the kingship granted to him. He was under Roman scrutiny all the time. When he went to Rome to receive the official title of King of Galilee, if you will, while he was there, he got involved in in all kinds of things he shouldn't have. And one of those was he fell in love with the, brother, the, the wife of one of his brothers, it, 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 the way the, the social networks worked, she, worked she, she was his niece. They began an affair together. He seduced her into leaving that man. So while he was in Rome, he seduced her, created a divorce after committing adultery with her, and basically married her and, and locked himself into an incestuous relationship. He came back to Judea, pardon me, to Galilee and began to rule openly with this woman who was named Herodias at his side. He dumped his wife, by the way, as well, of course. So he comes back to To Galilee and he creates scandal among the Jewish community. Maybe marrying and seducing your niece was something that Roman sexual culture would tolerate because it was already bending in some bad ways at that time but the Jewish law and the Jewish people were very clear about these things and so he was living in what you would call open sin. Now this piece of work as you could say lived and ruled in this way for a number of years it grated on the Jews until along came one man. Along came one man who would not tolerate it. Along came John the Baptist. Who was he? Just covering the biblical descriptions, John was the great promised one. who would come on the way to prepare the way for the Messiah's first coming. He came preaching against sin and preparing people to receive the Messiah. Who would that Messiah be? Jesus of Nazareth. He preached, brought people to repentance, baptized them in repentance, and urged them to prepare their hearts to to meet Christ. He did this for months and months on end at the River Jordan. But he, he not only baptized people, he preached against sin, and somehow in his ministry, He began to train his guns of conviction on the juiciest target in in Israel, and that would have been Herod, with the worst and most most sinful relationship in public life. He began to preach against it and tell Herod publicly that he was in great sin. Well, uh, Herod was taken aback but was rather timid, but his wife, His niece, Herodias, was a little bit like Jezebel was to Ahab. Ahab was sinful but timid. Jezebel was gas on a fire. (laughs) She could put him into overdrive and he would be doing stuff before he even knew it. And so Herodias was with, with, with Herod. And so she goaded him into jailing John the Baptist to shut him up. They had a palace near the Dead Sea today, we believe. And in the bottom of that palace was John in solitary confinement. And on the top floors was Herod and Herodias carrying on banquets and all kinds of immoral celebrations. So you got the world up here and you got the voice of conviction down there. This went on for some time. Now, Herodias hated John The Baptist, but Herod seemed to be intrigued and a little afraid of him. Herodias constantly prodded Herod to execute John, but Herod put it off. He was afraid of of what the people would say, and he was a little intimidated by John because John was a righteous man, the scripture says. In fact, Herod would often bring John up from his cell, and he would place him in in the throne room just to hear John. And the Bible says he would hear John often, and he would be perplexed. Now here is where I begin to look at things, and I wonder if something wasn't happening. This is my wondering, but many people who've looked at this passage, Herod's failure here, link it to this. It's possible that Herod was wrestling with some of his sin. It's possible. Why else would you bring somebody up from the ground floor to convict you every few weeks? It troubled him. He was perplexed. Perhaps at that time, Herod had a sincere, what I would call a sincere battle with conscience, a sincere battle with his own wickedness, with indeed what he had done to destroy a home and build this wicked marriage. We don't know. This went on for some time where he may have had a sincere battle of conscience. But one night he got drunk with his friends in the great banqueting room And Herodias saw her opportunity, knowing how weak-willed Herod was, but also how proud he was that he often made promises he really shouldn't make. Herodias talked her daughter from another relationship, Salome, who was very young and very beautiful, to go up into the banquet hall and dance a, a sensuous dance that would attract all the wrong impulses in Herod, get him all entranced in his drunkenness, to the point where she knew that he'd probably make a promise he couldn't keep. And after Salome does this dance, Herod is out of his mind, drunk with lust and with alcohol and everything else. And he tells me, tells her, I'll give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. Salome runs down the hallway to Herodias' bedroom. And Herodias says, you tell him, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She goes back into the banquet hall and before all the nobles that are there makes Herod know what the request is and Herod embarrassed and fearful of people doesn't do the thing of character he caves in to this blackmail and soon after that John is beheaded and his head is literally brought on a platter into the banquet room the depths of Herod's sin got deeper Where does this story go from there? Well, in your Bibles and in the Gospel of Luke, you can go back. And the next time we hear about Herod is in Luke chapter 9. And in verses 7 to 9, this is some time later, two things had happened. Christ's ministry had become very very extensive and widespread in Galilee where Herod was and he had sent out his disciples to go preaching and he had given them the authority and the power to work miracles all in the name of Jesus and so miracles were spreading and the name of Jesus was spreading in connection with them throughout Galilee and everyone was talking about it and word got to Herod in his throne room maybe in Tiberias right there in Galilee his main Uh, palace or maybe they're down there near the dead sea we don't know now herod the tetrarch this is luke 9 7 heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that john the baptist had been raised from the dead and that's who was running around the countryside performing all these miracles by some that elijah the old testament prophet had appeared elijah who never died but who went up to heaven and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So there was all this speculation. It's interesting. Jesus proclaimed, it's me. I'm the Messiah. I'm God's son. I'm doing this as to show you who I am. Most people never even considered the spiritually obvious. They went into spiritual fantasy. Isn't that the way it is today? Well, Herod hears all this conjecture and one of them sticks to his mind. Verse nine, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? So Herod owns his, his action. He'd sobered up by that time and realized that he had committed that great deed and perhaps it was troubling him. John, I beheaded. It's almost a statement of guilt and responsibility. "'But who is this about whom I hear such things?' Now, there are two possibilities John might have, uh, Herod might have believed this fantastic story that John had been risen from the dead and was haunting him, maybe he had a haunted heart, or maybe he was going back to what John told him and all those appearances in the throne room. If John the Baptist was invited up to Herod's throne, what would John have told him? The same thing he told everybody else. Behold, the Lamb of God is coming. Repent of your sins, get ready to receive him. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, Messiah is, is coming and is now here get right with him so john preached christ to herod that's my assumption so herod knew only not only about his sin and about how god hated it and that god wanted him to repent of it but also the nature of who jesus was the one whom scripture had promised and so he had all of that running around in his addled brain and he wanted to see him who was doing all these miracles. If it was John, Herod would, would at, least face, at least face what was haunting him. Or if it's Jesus, maybe he, could, he would face what he'd been told about Jesus. We, we can't know, but we, we know that the ministry of Jesus troubled Herod. At this point, I think it's possible to believe that per- Herod had 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 a sincere bout with conscience when he was facing John in person, and maybe he was having a serious battle with his conscience over what he'd done. We can't know, but it's a possibility. We do know that he was anxious to see Jesus, anxious to see the one creating all these miracles. So perhaps a serious battle with conscience going on? But if there was one, it didn't last long. Go further in your Gospel of Luke to chapter 13. This is the next time we see Herod connected with the ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 13, at verse 31, Jesus is, is preaching on his way and his final journey to Jerusalem. Some time has passed. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to what? kill you. Well, there's a change of heart. From interest in seeing him, perhaps because of a serious grappling over who he might be, to a a simple desire to kill him. Take him out of the picture. Herod desires to kill you. Interesting. Jesus said, he said to them, go and tell that fox behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. He's heard about my miracles. I continue my miracles and I go to the greatest work of my life. I'll finish my course in Jerusalem on that cross. And nobody stops me, particularly that fox. Now, a lot of people say, Jesus was saying, he's wise, he's tricky. He might catch me. He's a fox. No, in in, in that time and in that culture, when you called somebody a fox, a fox was a common little pest. Jesus was and He was saying, get that pest out of our conversation. Nobody stops me. And nobody dominates me from God's, the father's purpose. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Go, but, but Go back to the change in Herod from sincere interest in seeing Christ for whatever heart struggle he might've had, maybe a serious battle with conscience. Now he has spurned his conscience. Isn't that obvious? When you want to simply kill a person, you're living without a conscience. He spurned whatever conscience was stirring him, whatever interest he might have had in the truth that John had spoken to him in his throne room in all those hours now he had spurned it and he simply wanted to eliminate Jesus as a problem, as a bother, as something that, that, that troubled him. In a fl- -- I hope you see there's a possible progression here. Now why do I build all that up? Because we go from chapter 13 to now this text in chapter 23, and this is Herod's moment when he finally does see Jesus. And all of these events now in the background of this story come together. You can actually see them brought together at last. Now to our text in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus brought into his courtroom, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him. Isn't that true? I just explained it. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. What does this tell us Herod had descended to? He began perhaps with a sincere battle of conscience as he heard John the Baptist preach and then a serious crisis of conscience over the fact that he'd had John executed and he wondered perhaps he should look into what he had heard in this Jesus that had been spoken of to spurning his conscience and just becoming a common killer over this Jesus whom he had heard of before now he has no spiritual hunger at all. He simply wants a show. He wants a little amusement. He brings Jesus into his, into his throne room to see if Jesus will do one of these miracles that he heard about over the years, because he's a burned out and bored prince and he has no spiritual interest anymore. He just has an interest in amusement a burned-out and bored prince with no more spiritual hunger, just wanting some kind of sideshow. He wanted to turn Jesus into a court minstrel, a jester. So what is this? A sincere conscience that might have had some serious battle, but has now been spurned. And what's the next step when you spurn your conscience? The Bible says it's seared. I think... As I read his story, this is my conclusion. You may differ. I look at Herod as a great example of a spiritually seared over, burnt over conscience and heart. And that's why Jesus had nothing to say. Let's go further. Into the third observation. Now, Herod with Jesus before him. Herod questions him, and Jesus responds with silence, verses 9 and 10. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And all along, verse 10 says, along the side of the room, the chief priests and the scribes had followed Jesus to this new trial, and they stood by vehemently accusing him. But let's focus on verse 9, the encounter between Herod and Jesus. It says that Herod questioned him. And again, we can only speculate but what would he have asked Jesus? He knew about Christ's identity from John the Baptist's preaching. He knew about the reality of sin from John the Baptist's warnings. He knew about repentance from John the Baptist's call. He knew about the the power of Jesus from all the stories he he had heard from throughout his kingdom. But it doesn't appear that they got into the depth of any of that. What did Herod ask Jesus? We can't know, but here's my guess. I would think that Herod would ask about what he was interested in and what was he interested in. Verse 8, signs, miracles. That's all he wanted. He was done with spiritual interest, done, burned out, burned over in his heart about any, any issue of conscience, any issue of sin, any interest in, in changing his life. He was now burnt out and bored and he just wanted to see Jesus do a wonder or two. He forgot entirely about the legal question, perhaps pretty early, that Pilate had sent to him. And he began to ask Jesus about the things that he had heard over all those years. He might have looked at Jesus standing there before him, beaten and and bleeding and spat upon and bruised and roughly clothed might have looked at him and said, you know, I've heard a lot about you. I mean, I heard that there were basically no lame people left in Galilee after you came through a town. I heard you heal the lame. Now listen, I've got a servant down the hall who's been lame since birth. I heard that you can make him jump. If I brought him in here, would you do that? Silence. Nothing. Yeah, I heard about you also, that you have the ability to, to cast demons out of people. It was epic. That's what I heard. Well, I've got a bunch of prisoners down below us in my prison here. A bunch of them are demonic. Can I bring one up? And just for, just for the thrill of it, can you, can you cast some out? I want to hear them scream. Come on, just once. Silence. You know, I also heard about that feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> that was Im- unbelievable. That was around forever. You took a loaf of bread and it just kept growing in your hands and you just kept tearing it off and tearing it off and putting them in baskets. And hey, here, there's some bread right over here on the side table. Do it just once. Can you grab that? And I want to see that silence maybe even said and by the way I heard about what you did with that little girl who was dead in her house and she came back from the dead. And, and, and the widow of Nain, that was even more epic. That Her son had been dead all day, and he was in his casket on the way to the cemetery. And you stopped the casket, and he sat up in it. Man, can we go out to the cemetery right now? Can you pull that off? I would give anything. Maybe he would even, he would even say, I'll give half my kingdom to see that. As dumb as he was. I'm just wondering if he didn't ask him about what was really on his mind, the only thing the Bible says was on his mind was miracles. He wanted a show. Perform for me! Jester. Silence. Silence. Now, could Jesus have done a miracle? Class? Yes. He had said earlier, listen, I'm holding off 12 legions of angels right now, people. But all this must happen to fulfill the Father's will. Of course he could have done a miracle. Of course he could have walked to the side table and made the bread multiply. And you know what would have happened right after he did that? What would Herod have said? Do another one. Do another one. Because he was done with spiritual hunger and inquiry and he was just into supernatural tricks. He had fascination without conviction. His conscience had been seared over and left him with nothing but a silly mind. And that is what we see in this moment. And Jesus answered that seared over soul with silence. By the way, the scripture says here that he didn't answer all those other raving braying people in the side of the room with all their false accusations either did jesus have an answer for all those false accusations every one of them they were all false he could have proven them all false and put herod into his own dilemma he chose not to answer one of them why because he had to fulfill a calling in isaiah chapter 53 all of this was prophetically unfolding and the bible tells me that when my messiah came In verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Who was in charge of the room? Who was the master of the moment? In the majesty of silence, my Jesus proves his messiahship like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, fully knowing that his silence would actually get him to the cross. And like a sheep that is before its shearers, that before its shearers is silent, uh, it's again repeated. So he opened not his mouth. There are two reasons that he could have refuted it all, but didn't. And he was silent to Herod's, empty questions. One is to fulfill his call, but the other is perhaps because of what we see to be a biblical principle, if you will. It would seem that if you have seared your conscience to the point where you're unserious about the Savior of the world, you could expect silence from God. This is a, a place where you may contend You may have difficulty understanding this, but a lot of commentators have linked this whole episode to Matthew 7, verse 6, where Jesus made a a strange but understandable statement. In Matthew 7, verse 6, he says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not cast your pearls, your pearls before pigs. What was that all about? What's the pearl of great price according to another parable that he talked about? The gospel. The news of the kingdom, of seeing your sin and discovering your Savior. That's the news of greatest price. You know, pearls back in the time of Judea were some of the most precious stones there were. They were regarded as precious stones. We don't regard them as that today. They're kind of decorative One authority I read this week uh, stated that in Jesus' day, a pearl was more in demand than gold. That's why the parable of the pearl of great price held such weight. So the, the greatest value, Jesus said, shouldn't be given to those who despise it. Don't throw the pearl of The beauty of the gospel before swine, don't give something spiritually valuable to those who turn on you. In Matthew 7, 6, it says, don't, don't throw the, don't, don't give this, these gifts to dogs lest they turn on you and devour you. That implies that the person hearing it has gone from interest to hostility toward the gospel. That's where Herod was. We'll find in the next few verses, he gets really hostile toward Jesus. do not give what is holy to dogs or cast pearls before swine, unless they turn and devour you. It says there also in that text that the pigs will trample the, 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 the pearls under their feet. D.A. Carson talks about this in his commentary on Matthew seven. He says, pigs don't recognize pearls. <laughs> They're looking for little pods, They're looking for little bean pods there in the slop because that's what they like. And they'll slurp up a couple of pearls and, roll them around in their fat little mouths and then spit them out and then stomp them away so that they can dig further for the pods of beans. That's a heart that's rejected Christ. That's a heart and a life that's spurned truth. That's a conscience that's seared to the point where it's totally disinterested in the greatest price in the world. Jesus is saying here, if it's spurned and rejected with disdain, Be careful how you handle it with somebody like that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, he gave instructions to his disciples in Galilee as they went out and he said, in whatever city or village you enter, inquire who's worthy in it and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. This is Jesus. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Spiritual interest gets revelation, receives judgment. In the book of Acts, Paul, as he left Athens and went to Corinth and began to preach, it says there in Acts chapter 18, I believe, that he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, he began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying, as John the Baptist would have, to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they, they resisted him, talking about the Jews in that city, and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. So there, there was this, this response of seared over consciences, caught up in their own version of truth. You say, well, th- that keeps people from hearing the gospel. Actually, no. They've heard the gospel, they're rejecting it. And in fact, if you keep pounding on that closed door to the exclusion of sharing the gospel with others, now people aren't hearing the gospel because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You need to go and and speak into lives that are open, whose consciences haven't been totally wrecked and who are not totally against the gospel. Look for those lives. It's a call to be discerning. I guess you could say that's all Jesus was saying. He wasn't being severe he's being discerning. He says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. There are white for harvest. There are many ready to come. Some commentators on this, James Stalker said it may be thought that Jesus ought to have spoken to Herod that Jesus missed an opportunity. And you might be sitting here saying that he missed an evangelistic opportunity with Herod. Herod had been heavily evangelized and Herod was asking for the wrong thing. Ought Jesus, he writes, not to have appealed to his conscience and attempted to rouse him to a sense of his sin? To this I answer that Christ's silence was itself his appeal. Had there been a spark of conscience left in Herod, my opinion, there wasn't. Those divine eyes looking him through and through and that divine dignity measuring and weighing him would have caused his sins to rise up out of the grave and overwhelm him overwhelm him jesus was silent in order that the voice of the dead baptist might be heard in herod's ears herod knew enough if we really understood it he writes the silence of christ is the most eloquent of all appeals jc ryle Herod had heard the truth often from John the Baptist's mouth in the early days. What he lacked was not more knowledge, but a heart and a will to act upon what he knew. As has been said throughout my comments on this chapter, and Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, Herod in effect silenced the voice of God himself. It was not Herod who was judging Jesus, it was Jesus who was judging Herod. And so there we stand now in this horrible silence that ought to make anyone soberly ask the question, where could a person be where they would receive the silence of the Savior like that? I'll leave it to you to draw your conclusions about this empty man, but those are mine. forth. We move now from this moment of silence, this ridiculous demand for a show met with silence by the majestic savior. And we see what the silence does. Like Dr. Ryle said, it could have been an opportunity for repentance even there. But when Herod is treated with silence, his true heart shows up. Verse 11, and Herod with his soldiers Treated him with contempt and mocked him. What had the heart of Herod come to? Contempt for the Savior. Mocked him. Unbelief. A king, are you? Maybe they bowed down before him like the Romans did. Maybe they gave him a little reed for a scepter like they would do later in the. The jail of Pilate, we don't know, but they mocked him. His kingship was a joke. And then to top it all off before they sent him back to Pilate, it said they arrayed him in splendid clothing. The Greek is the word lampros. It meant brightly white. Kings in Jewish society often wore white robes that had been bleached so that they were almost blindingly white to make them appear grander than anyone else. And maybe they haul one of Herod's old robes out of the hallway and draped it over Jesus, the king. And they sent him back to Pilate. Now that's important because in all of this, with all the accusations being hurled from the side of the room by the chief priests and the scribes, all the the calls about Christ's crimes. Herod heard all that. But when he sent him back to Pilate, it was making a statement, and that was that he didn't find Jesus guilty of anything. Remember, all this happened in Herod's courtroom. And that brings us to the last. Christ's innocence. Verse 12, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. It's a very curious detail included by Luke, but it's explained by the context. Remember, what started all of this was Pilate was in a dilemma, an innocent man, a bloodthirsty crowd, a political problem. He'd hoped for an out. He saw a loophole and he sent Jesus to Herod, hoping that that would create some kind of solution to this. And lo and behold, he got a solution because when Herod sent Jesus back, Herod was saying, in effect, I'm sending him back. I don't find him guilty of anything except being an adult who want to be king. So Pilate now had someone else who agreed with his verdict. Don't you see that? They'd been enemies because of how they handled different portions of of the Jewish population, and they'd they'd come up against each other as battling authorities, and they weren't friendly until that time. But now, Herod had done Pilate a solid, as we would say, not even knowing it, because now Pilate had another court that he could refer to and say, see, they declared him innocent too. He had something that he hoped would shut up this angry mob and end all of this before breakfast. That's what he wanted. And Herod sending Jesus back to him, they, they became what you would call frenemies. How many are familiar with the term frenemy? It's a, it's a real term. I even looked it up in Wikipedia. Frenemy. What's a frenemy? Well, it's tied to the old, old phrase. I don't know who invented it, but the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Herod had voted against convicting Jesus. Pilate wanted to vote against convicting Jesus. And that was another vote against the enemy that day. Who was the enemy? The crowds outside Pilate's house asking for blood. Pilate thought that this would solve the problem. And so, of course, they'd kind of done each other a solid particularly Herod the Pilate. And that's exactly what Pilate does in the next verse, verse 13. He called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. In other words, I quitted him myself. You heard me. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Second, verdict of innocent. Second trial, second verdict. I would point out this marks the end of the second Roman trial, the second not guilty verdict. And I would point out that it marks out who died on a cross the next day or that day. An innocent man. Why did all this happen? Why all this human drama included in the record? Why over and over again the declarations of the innocence of Jesus? Because I told you that the Bible tells me that the one who went to that cross for me had to be clearly and evidently innocent. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 brings it all together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Oh, that was happening right there, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus had to be innocent for wretched, guilty me. All of this played out by human hands with human voices, all part of the sovereign plan of God. And Jesus in masterful silence allowing it all to happen. Isn't he a marvelous savior? Well, we do know that Pilate had a vain wish that another court that agreed with him with silence, all this, but we know that wasn't going to happen, right? And that led the crowd to roar even more. And we go to the third trial of Jesus next time. We'll talk about that next time. But it's just interesting, and a lot of people who've studied this text have observed this, that in all of these trials, person after person got face to face with Jesus, and they failed to respond to him. Haughty Caiaphas, the high priest, the bellowing scribes there in the room and in the courtyard and in Herod's palace, cynical Pilate, and seared over Herod. And today, 2,000 years gone, I present the same Jesus to you. He still lives. He still is who he is. Your sin still is what it is. And he is the savior he proclaimed himself to be. And so my, my question as we close is, what will you do with him if you have not yet come to Christ? Do you fear that you've actually seared your conscience? It's a scary thing. Do you feel that you've actually seared your conscience? I don't know who said it, but they said that no person reaches the extreme of evil all at once. It's a path of degrees, small decisions, simple abandonments over time. A path by which a person is let down into a depth that they never thought it was possible that they could get to is by the continual neglect of the small voice of conscience. You neglect your convictions long enough, however, and sooner or later you might find yourself in a cavern of evil. Don't let that happen to you. The very fact that when I ask you, do you fear, you've seared your conscience, if that stirs something in you, means not quite. Turn to Christ. Don't do what Herod did and waste your moment. Don't do what Pilate did and fail to believe that there's a solution for sin. You feel that Christ is seeking and speaking to your heart. Remember that all of this was done. All this injustice, all of this ugliness, all of this intrigue, all of this was allowed to happen according to God's plan to show his love for you. The Father's love is so great that the Son willingly endured all this injustice. He died, the Lord Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust, my Bible says, that he might bring us to God. This was for you. Whether you're here in this room or you're watching, all he asks of you is that you admit your need and believe that Jesus died in order to make you acceptable to God and confess him as your Lord. As Paul read in our hearing, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. See your sin for what it is and the Savior for who he is and don't miss your